Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 4, The Deal. How long do we have to stand out here? Susan didn't want to sound whiny, but thought she probably did. They stood in the snow between three tall white pine tree trunks beside a narrow country road. Paul leaned out to see that the red soda can was still sitting atop the fence post. It was. He looked back at Susan and shrugged. His face suddenly went blank, his posture tensed up. The faint sound of footsteps crunching atop hard snow became audible. Hey, hello there, neighbor, called a male voice. Fancy running into you way out here. Well, what are the odds, eh? He was a short man with ample girth. In his brownish-red canvas coat and skinny tan pants, he resembled a caramel apple with two sticks. His beard didn't conceal his rounded cheeks. He did not have the thin, sunken look that so many local residents had. His black market business, or whatever he does, keeps him well-fed, Susan thought. Shifley stopped walking when he saw Susan step out from behind a tree. Eh, who's this, then? he asked Paul in an accusing tone. Hi, my name is Susan. She held out her hand to be shaken. Shively looked at Paul for an explanation. Susan ignored the slight, but made note of his rapidly shifting eyes. He nervously glanced all around as if expecting to discover more people on the lonely road. He might be playing both sides, but he seems too nervous to be merely a fed mole. They'd be more confident, I'd think. I'm living with Paul's sister, Sandy, Susan continued. She decided to talk like an insider. You know Sandy, right? She and Carl are really nice, but you probably know that. Well, I was telling Sandy about my friend Kayla over supper a while back. How come Paul's never mentioned you then, eh? Shively squinted at her as if his question should make her squirm. She glanced at Paul and smiled. He hasn't mentioned me? Well, I'm not too surprised. He doesn't hardly say anything. A hint of a smile softened Shively's frown. <laughs> You're right about that. He quickly composed a new business-like expression. One can't be too careful these days, you know. The feds are always up to some sneaky tricks. And you just might be one of them, she thought behind her smile. She could feel her throat tightening and her mouth going dry as she tried to recall the steps of the plan that they had rehearsed. It would be time to start asking about the medications. She knew that telling outright lies would somehow show up on her face in little mannerisms that she couldn't control. Time to start the performance. Oh, I totally agree about the need to be careful. She leaned closer to half-whisper. I've heard that there are some black marketeers who help rebel groups. Susan feigned a gasp at the thought. Who'd do that? That would be such huge trouble, don't you think? That it would, miss, Shively smiled broadly. And no one wants trouble. Right, 
So, as I was saying, my name is Susan. Paul told me all about you, Mr. Shively. Oh? Shively glanced at Paul with narrowed eyes. He said how you were a very resourceful man with a desire to help people. Susan knew men were prone to accept flattery from women without much question. Oh, I, I am that. Shively's face relaxed. Susan relaxed a little, too. She needed to ease into the barter process. I was asking Paul if there was some way I could help my friend Kayla. He said that he knew someone who could maybe help. I was worried it might turn out to be some sketchy creep or something. But I can say that after meeting you and seeing such an honest face, I feel much more relaxed about it all. Shively stroked his chin, as if trying to feel what an honest face felt like. So, how might I be able to help you, my dear? Note to self, she thought. Shively is very susceptible to flattery. Oh, actually, it's not for me. It's for my friend, Kayla. She needs some medical supplies. She was a school nurse down in Massachusetts before all this began. Susan felt safe, inferring that it was Kayla who was the refugee's camp nurse. Byron said she needs in his transmission. Kayla confided in me how she feels overwhelmed trying to take care of them all. She's doing the best she can, but Kayla knows she isn't a doctor, and she certainly doesn't have all the supplies she needs. Susan took a breath before embarking on some carefully tangential statements to avoid the truth that the supplies were for rebels in the Fed's eyes. I mean, can you imagine trying to take care of almost fifty sick children? I wouldn't be able to do that, but Kayla is special. Well, you know how it is with kids. When one of them gets sick, they all get sick. I, I get that. So what is she asking for? Susan handed Shively a small piece of paper. I wasn't sure how to pronounce these. Susan had used her best bubble-letter style of cursive from middle school. She hoped a youthful feminine style would make the note look more innocent. Hmm, well, that's a tall order. A thousand tablets of each? Oh, why so much? Susan felt she was on thin ice. Um, well, I wouldn't know. Susan stalled for time, hoping she would think of something plausible. Paul leaned in with a worried glance. Uh, I'm no doctor, Susan continued, but if there were a lot of kids and, and they each had to take antibiotics for ten days. Shively nodded as he stared at the note. Yeah, I suppose. Susan could see Paul relax with a barely perceptible eye roll. She let out a disguised sigh. So, you can help, right? These are some pretty common stuff. I think I know where I could find some, Shively said slowly. He glanced at Susan with one eyebrow raised. Ten ounces of silver for each bottle. Silver? I don't know if Kayla has any silver. She never said she did. She was a school nurse. Susan could feel herself getting warm, despite standing on the snowy country road. Yeah, whatever. Shively waved the little piece of paper. You gotta understand, the people who have these things, they aren't just gonna give them to me out of the goodness of their hearts. 
they'll expect fair compensation. Susan knew her part was to appear out of ideas. She glanced around and wrung her hands. Um, oh, uh, well, ah. Uh... What about ammo? Paul asked after a calculated pause. He and Doug thought it would work better if Susan didn't suggest the ammunition as the alternative. It would seem too deliberate. Why would a school nurse have ammo? Shively asked with a hint of suspicion. Paul shrugged. Don't know. Just suggesting. Bullets? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Susan tried to look mildly surprised. She felt like she needed to flood the conversation with trivial personal details to dispel any hint of insurgency that ammunition might conjure. Oh, Kayla doesn't have any bullets. I mean, why would she? She's a nurse, and just trying to make people feel better. Uh, but her boyfriend, Owen, I think he had some. Owen's a nice guy, kind of socially awkward, yeah, but a sweetheart. He really likes Kayla and tries to help out wherever he can. I think he had some bullets, even though he doesn't actually use a gun. He hunts with a stick. He showed me how. She held up her own hunting stick as a distracting visual aid. I was watching him hunt crows to bring some meat to the table, and it was so amazing that I just had to. Shively held up his hand to stop the flow of words. How much ammo does this Owen have? Oh, uh, well, let me think. Susan looked to one side and poked at her chin. Doug and Paul cautioned her not to appear too knowledgeable about firearms and ammunition. I think I saw a box of something on a shelf once. Shively shifted his weight with a little sigh of impatience. Was it a big box or a little box? Were there any numbers on it? Oh, well, it was a little box, I guess, uh, about this big. Numbers? Susan squinted her eyes closed, pretending to study memories. I remember uh, a five and a six. Fifty-six? Uh, Is that how many are inside? Shively stared at the snow. Hmm, probably five, five, six. Small box like that, it'd be twenty rounds. Why would this stick hunter have a box of five, five, six? Susan shook her head and shrugged. Oh, no idea. He hunted with a stick. Maybe someone traded it for some meat or something. Well, I don't know. I've heard that people sometimes used bullets like money. He certainly didn't need them. That's why they were still sitting on the shelf all that time. Well, if this Kayla wants these meds, she's going to have to come up with four boxes of 556. Four? Susan tried not to look too melodramatic in her shocked surprise. All I ever saw was that one. What if she only has one? Four boxes. That's the price. Take it or leave it. Oh, man, oh, I don't know. Uh, four boxes, Susan muttered to herself. She knew not to make the price sound easy. Sellers want to feel like their price was high. It was better to accept his price without question. Failing to haggle would help her look like a total novice at bartering. Appearing to be a clueless female would typically have rankled her pride. Yet it was sometimes useful to let a man think that women were not too bright. It made the man less careful. She felt a little uncomfortable pretending to be worried about the price when she wasn't. Acting wasn't that easy for her. She limited herself to looking at the ground. 
She didn't want her eyes giving her away in the final stages of negotiations. Take it or leave it. Shively folded his arms across his chest. Susan sighed heavily and shook her head in resignation. Ah, she really needs those things. I'll let her know. She'll just have to figure out something, right? Because you said that's the price. Well, maybe Owen can find more. Well, it's just got to work out. Susan grabbed Shively's hand and shook it vigorously. Thank you so much. I knew you could help. She felt relieved to be done with her acting performance. I have no idea how they managed it, and in just three days, Susan said, still acting her role. I'm really glad Owen and Kayla could find another three boxes of those bullets. Paul walked between her and Shively, pulling a sled on the snow-packed road toward town. She'll be so excited to get these pills. Oh, you have no idea how— Missy, Shively interrupted. You— Susan. My name is Susan. Whatever, said Shively. You need to be quieter now. We're getting close to town. As a matter of fact, I can't be seen with either of you. People notice things, and they talk. Connect dots I don't want connected. You take the main road in and turn down the river road. I'm taking back roads. I'll meet you where the railroad tracks meet the south end of the long pond. With that, Shively veered right, crossing behind them. His backpack rattled softly from the bottles of pills inside. Susan watched him out of the corner of her eye as she and Paul continued to walk down the street. She sensed that Paul was watching discreetly, too. He pulled a sled loaded with two five-gallon pails of milk. A trip to the co-op to trade was their pretext for being in town. The men at the checkpoint sometimes demanded plausible explanations for why someone was coming into town. Once they were a suitable distance down the street and no further sign of Shively, Susan whispered, I don't know what to make of that man. He seems too nervous and impatient for someone setting traps for people, helping the insurgents. Jeez, oh, he's even got me calling them insurgents. They're just people stuck behind that stupid blockade. Paul held up one finger across his lips. Oh, oh, sorry. Susan's voice sank back into a low whisper. I get all worked up. And where does he get this stuff anyway? Part of me thinks he's being supplied by the feds. I mean... They've got tons of stuff like that, FEMA warehouses and all. Who else would have that much antibiotics that they traded away, huh? Or, or is he stealing it? Oh, we need to be careful around that guy. Paul nodded in agreement. With the tip of his head, he pointed to the checkpoint ahead of them. It was farther out from town than before. Paul pulled his ID papers out of his coat pocket. Susan and Paul joined the line of people waiting to get into town. "'Business?' asked the man with a blue armband. He held out his hand for their papers. "'Oh, we're taking some milk to the co-op to trade for.' The man pulled the lids off the pails and swirled a section of broom handle around inside, probing for hidden objects. Susan discreetly rolled her eyes. Oh, "'Way to go, bucko. Poke your dirty old stick into other people's milk.' He handed back Paul's paper and two small squares of pink paper with a big letter A stamped in the middle. 
He left them to recap the pails as he impatiently waved forward the next person in line. Oh, what a jerk, Susan whispered. What did he think we would be smuggling into town inside a pail of milk? Silver, Paul said without looking up. Oh, Susan hadn't thought of that. Between the five households at five corners, they had little use for money, fiat or commodity. They produced or stored much of what they needed and traded with neighbors for the rest. Trips to town were more for show than necessity. With all the shortages and rationing, it was prudent to appear to be as needy as everyone else. Silver, she thought. In prior trips to town, Susan had overheard people grumbling about the lack of dollars in circulation. Even if you acquired some, they lost value every week. Good velocity, poor supply she recalled from her banking days. After six months in a collapsed economy, people didn't trust dollars very much. They demanded more and more dollars in exchange for their tangible goods. Demand inflation. Silver had been rising in use as an alternative underground currency of choice. This had prompted the authorities to issue a ban on silver. With silver banned, she said, why does Shively always want that first? Paul shrugged. Hmm, wonder if that's a trap, too. See if people trade with silver. She shook her head. Huh, nope, I don't trust that man. Gotta keep my mind on this trade deal, she thought. Can't let myself get distracted by other issues, or I'll screw it up. Focus on this trade. Just focus on this trade. They waited in the long line to get into the co-op. At the main table, a wiry woman with sunken cheeks squinted at Paul, then into their two pails of milk. Ten credits each, she squeaked. It was a declaration, not an offer. Prices were set by the Planning for Prosperity Committee. The woman reached into a shallow cardboard box on her table and pulled out four postcard-sized pieces of paper. Co-op script. The simply decorated, photocopied five-credit notes were only good for trade within the co-op. They walked up and down the narrow aisles. The shelves were sparsely stocked with random goods, as if it were an indoor yard sale. Paul searched in vain for anything he thought they actually needed. Just pick something, Susan whispered out of the side of her mouth. This is just for show. We need to get going. He settled on a leather belt and one panel of living-room curtains. The fabric and the leather could find a use someplace. He pocketed the unused script. With their show of shopping done, Paul and Susan left town on the south road, not the west road they had come in on. She kept her mind focused on the mission at hand. The trade had to be successful. Despite being anxious to get on with the rendezvous, she knew that they had to shuffle along slowly act like the rest of the dispirited city dwellers. For them, life was bleak and dreary. No one hurried anywhere. There was no reason to. She and Paul had to look like average city people. She found that it took concentration to keep her pace slow and her head down. The exit checkpoints usually searched backpacks and bundles, but seldom asked for papers, as long as their suspicions weren't aroused. The road veered closer to the railroad causeway that cut across a backwater of the river, creating a pond. 
Paul paused to pretend to fuss with the ropes around his sled bundle while he looked around to see who else might be on the road. No one was in sight. He nodded to Susan. They each lifted an end of the sled, stepped over the guardrail, and sidestepped down the snowy slope to the frozen pond. Susan could see Shively's head and that of another man among the scrubby brambles on the other side of the embankment. She didn't recognize the other man, but wasn't surprised to see someone else. No one went to a trade alone. We're going out to that island out there, Shively pointed across the ice to a long snowy bump bristling with bare tree trunks. What? Susan thought the deal would take place right there. Oh, what's wrong with right here? Still too easy to be overheard. Don't want random people walking by and hearing stuff. Now, the ice is none too thick. Better use your snowshoes. He already had his on. Shively's trader second scrambled up the embankment to peer over the tracks and make sure that no one was within sight. Claire, said the second as he slid down. He slipped his feet onto his snowshoe bindings and cinched them tight. We'd better hurry, said Shively. Patrols up this road aren't due for another half an hour. But I don't want to be seen by anyone. Squealers are everywhere. Spread out, too. Ice is thin. The four of them hurried across the frozen river. Beneath her steps, Susan could feel the ice flex slightly. She heard muffled cracks. She was relieved when they made it to the island without any severe cracks appearing. Once everyone was on the low shoreline, Shively directed them to go around to the eastern side of the low wooded rise. This high point of the island was only about four feet above the river, but it still afforded a useful screen. Now we sit and wait to see if your nurse shows up. They all sat with their backs against the trees to reduce any possible silhouettes visible from the other shore. Susan was glad that Shively didn't question that Kayla would come from the New Hampshire side rather than up the road from Vernon. The feds closing all bridges across the Connecticut River made the New Hampshire route plausible enough. The wait gave Susan time to look around. The low hill hid them from view from the Vermont side, being in the river made the island a sort of no-man's land. Shively seems pretty familiar with this island, she thought. I don't see any other footprints, but he must have used it for some other swap meetings. Does he smuggle supplies into New Hampshire, defying the siege? Could he do that with Fed approval? What if this is just a small-time deal to gain our confidence, in hopes that we'll try something bigger and then arrest us? Susan had always been careful not to ask too many questions or appear too curious. She was delighted that Shively insisted that she come along to identify Kayla for the trade. The prospect of seeing someone from Chief's group lifted her spirits. Second pointed across the narrower band of ice to the New Hampshire side. Looks like them now. Two men cautiously peered from behind trees. Neither one of them looks like a woman. Shively growled quietly to Susan. Was that such a surprise? Susan said flatly. These are dangerous times. Besides, she's got sick people to tend to. But don't get all worried. 
The shorter man on the right is Owen. That's Kayla's boyfriend. She recognized his brown coat. The taller one is Byron, Owen's uh, friend. I know them both. Susan saw Shively stand up and subtly adjust the lay of a pistol in his coat pocket before he waved for the two men to cross the ice and the frozen marsh to the island. Susan felt for the revolver in her waistband. No funny business out of you, Shiv, she thought. As the two approached through the hard snow of the island's marsh, Byron stopped. Oh, no, Susan thought. Byron didn't notice Paul and I until now. Four people instead of just two. He thinks it's a trap. I'd better wave. Hey, Byron, long time, huh? Byron's scowl melted into a broad smile. What the? Susan? Uh, it's Susan. Uh, yeah, hi. Susan wanted to ask a flood of questions, but she had to stay focused on the business at hand. The trade needed to happen first. She needed to stay focused. So how's Kayla doing, taking care of all of those sick children? All the, uh, yeah, uh, it's hard. Uh, you know how children can be, Byron answered carefully. No time for chit-chat, interrupted Shively. I assume you've got the ammo. We do, said Byron. I assume you have the meds. Shively waved at second, who pulled the two white plastic jugs from the backpack and held them up to be seen. Second shook them to assert their contents. From a coat pocket, Owen pulled three boxes of rounds, each a different color of box. From another pocket, he produced an improvised cloth bag with loose rounds in it. Susan smiled slightly. Oh, nice touch, Byron, she thought. The random packaging makes it look like you had to scrounge to find 80 rounds. Matching boxes would have looked suspiciously like part of a larger stash. Shiv would probably want to renegotiate. Shively nodded to Second, who took three steps to his left and set one jug of antibiotics on the snow. Byron nodded to Owen, who took three steps to his left and placed one of the ammunition boxes on the snow. After resuming their central positions, Byron and Shively nodded to their cohorts. Owen stooped down to read the jug's label and peer inside. The pills were the right shape and color. Second knelt down and opened the small cardboard box. He peered at the primers and let a few loose rounds roll into his hand. Both men nodded to their leaders. Byron looked Shively squarely in the eye. Deal? Deal. Susan blew out a little sigh of relief. Tense as it was, the deal went smoothly and quickly. Help was on the way for those wounded people from camp. She wondered if they were people that she knew. Owen and Second stepped back to their leaders. After a short pause, Owen stepped over to deposit the remainder of the ammo beside the first box. Second placed the other jug of pills beside the first. This was the first trading deal that Susan had witnessed between strangers. Setting the goods a few paces away and letting the other party pick them up seemed designed to provide plausible deniability. One could honestly say that the other party didn't give them the goods. They found them in the woods. It was a dancing around the edges of semantics. She wondered if it was worth the bother. 
If the authorities arrested them and accused them of trading with the enemy, would their interrogators be satisfied with the story of simply finding things in the woods? Second peered over his shoulder, then crouched down. Psst, psst. Patrols coming up the road, he whispered. Everyone crouched low to the ground. They usually walk slow, whispered Shively. Takes them twenty minutes to get around the bend. We'll be clear to go after that. The voices of the three-man patrol could be heard across the frozen river. Sound carried farther than most people realized. Even their footsteps crunched and scraped audibly. They apparently didn't expect to encounter anyone. Byron scooted sideways, closer to Susan. He whispered quietly, Hey, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. Last I saw, you and Charon were running across the bridge with the feds after you. Yeah, we stayed a step ahead, just barely, Susan whispered back. Next day, we uh, split up. Charon went west, I went north. Long story. I ended up with a set of farm families, a place called Five Corners. They know a guy with a good radio. That's who you made contact with. Susan looked to see if Shively was listening. He was focused on the passing patrol. Nonetheless, she lowered her whisper even more. What about you? You guys had to bug out. Did everyone make it out? Byron looked at the ground. Not everyone, he matched her barely audible tone. Some of them couldn't bug out. They stayed behind, presumed captured. No idea what that means anymore. For the rest of us, a fighting withdrawal kept the feds pinned while we evacuated north. They followed us across the border for a few miles, before the locals started shooting at him, too. Oh, did you uh, lose anyone? Byron nodded slowly. A few. Hal was one. The others, nah, I don't think you knew. Oh. Death was no stranger to Susan. Nonetheless, she got an odd feeling knowing that someone was dead, but she could still pull up mental images of their face and mannerisms, memories of their voice. It was an odd sort of undead condition. Quite a few were wounded as we ran, continued Byron. We bugged out with what we could grab, but cross-country in winter is rough. Long story, too. We settled in the woods around Monadnock, State Park Forest. We found a Christian group with a summer camp, kind of like ours, on the east side of the mountain. We sort of merged with them. Well, nothing official or doctrinal, just practical. Some of our wounded aren't recovering well. Infections set in, hence our need for the meds. Shively scooted backward from the low crest of the island. Okay, he announced to the group. Patrol's almost gone around the bend. Safe for you guys to go now. Go? A flood of thoughts sprang to life in Susan's mind. Wait, this deal is done. I was so focused on the deal that I didn't think about this moment right now. I'm on the border. They're going back into New Hampshire. If I go with Byron and Owen, I'd be that much closer to Cheshire. I could get back to... Susan glanced from face to face to see if anyone was reading her mind. The others didn't seem to have noticed. They were quietly securing their loads. But I have none of my gear. This was just a day trip. All my stuff is back at Sandy's. I don't have my rifle. I didn't even bring my big knife. 
I've got next to nothing on me. Oh, why didn't I bring everything? Oh, because this was just a trip to town. That's why. I'd be searched. I couldn't bring all my stuff. Byron waved goodbye to Susan as he and Owen began to scoot down the gentle slope, making their way between the bare saplings and the dry marsh grass toward the ice. Ah, they're going. If I'm going to do it, uh, I need to go now. If, if I'm going, if I'm going to, don't I know? Huh, I could make it without my stuff, couldn't I? Those guys would help me. Oh, blast, that would just make me the helpless woman again, depending on everyone else. Oh, God, I hate that. I promised myself I'd never again. Ah, they're almost across the ice. I could still make it. I could run. Oh, what would Paul think? What would Shively think? He'd think I was a liar or an insurgent or something fishy. What if Byron's people needed more meds? I would totally ruin any future deals for them. Oh, blast! Why is this so hard? Seeing Byron and Owen jog into the woods felt like having the chair kicked out from under her. She couldn't draw a breath. They're leaving. I can't run after them. I don't want to ruin everything. She felt her shoulders ache. I have to stay. For now, anyhow. She kept watching until they had been absorbed into the forest. Okay, said Shively. We're going around the south end of the island to cross. You two head to the north tip and then cross. He didn't wait for any discussion or approval. He and Second rolled onto their snowshoes and crouch-walked south. Paul looked at Susan with a worried expression, as if she had just woken up in a hospital bed. I'm fine, she said weakly. She felt far from anything resembling fine. Ah, we'd better get going. This chapter, aside from introducing a significant secondary character, Shively, takes a look at the complication of barter transactions. It's pretty common to hear people say that barter will fill the void if a national currency collapses. That's true enough. People aren't going to stop exchanging goods and services just because the fiat money is gone. But the reality of a barter economy is likely to be a lot more complicated and frustrating than people think. We've lived so long with a standardized currency that it's ingrained in our way of thinking. We don't even notice it. Prices in a currency become an objective benchmark to compare with. The dollars, pounds, or euros, whatever, are marvelously fungible. They could become anything. I trade my labor for dollars. Those dollars can become anything I want or need. With barter, the objective standard disappears pretty much. How many gallons of milk is a chicken worth? It becomes entirely subjective. How badly do I want that milk? I don't think most people are comfortable with subjective valuing. It's like haggling. Most people don't like haggling. I mean, it's so squishy and uncertain. Given our long history of thinking in terms of money as an agreed-upon trade item, it seems likely that people will gravitate towards something as a money substitute. In this chapter, silver and ammo are the substitute commodity money. Had you thought about how you might fare if things became a barter economy? What might you have to trade? What are you likely to want to trade for? I hope you're having a great summer so far, except you listeners in Australia. I hope you're getting ready for your winter. 
Thanks for your comments to my recent posts, Siege Club members and patrons. I do like hearing from you. Next week, we go back to New Hampshire.